Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. Today, the beauty of collaboration. The Greek philosopher Aristotle said, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. A group of Atlanta's finest musicians will demonstrate the joy of ensemble work in an upcoming concert online. Later, we'll hear about this Sunday's chamber music extravaganza from pianists Julie Kushran and Will Ransom. First, collaborative comedy with some unexpected twists. Here is something ideal for public radio listeners. Intellectual comedy. Add Southern to the mix and you have a winning combination. In fact, the trio of comedians we're about to meet have amassed a huge following thanks in part to an NPR feature in 2016 about the liberal redneck. That's what comedian Trey Crowder called his series of videos that went viral. Trey Crowder joins us now with his colleagues Corey Forrester and Drew Morgan. Welcome to City Lights. Yes, hello. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. What a pleasure. Now, first off, how did you all meet? We met doing stand-up in Tennessee. Me and Drew were in Knoxville. Corey was in Chattanooga, and we had a we had sort of a similar approach, which has remained our approach the entire time. And that's that you could tell we all sounded like we were Southern and talked about being from the South, but we weren't doing material that was your classic like. And I'm doing air quotes, redneck humor, you know, uh, blue collar type stuff. So we kind of bonded over that and just started doing stuff together and have been ever since, basically. (laughs) Trey, you came up with a persona, the liberal redneck. What inspired this character? Just growing up as the weirdo commie in a small town in Tennessee, basically, uh, just my life inspired it. (laughs) My life and general life experience. I, uh, I grew up in a town in Tennessee called Salina that's, again, very, very rural, very, like, you know, stereotypically redneck. But as long as I've had any kind of political opinions or leanings at all, it's been very much on the left. And as you can imagine, that was a whole thing um, and has remained a whole thing. So it came from a very authentic place, you know, for me. Drew, I loved reading that being raised by a preacher and a librarian this explains your intellectualism and constant state of existential crisis. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, I guess in the current year we're living in, I didn't need much help. But even before this year, yeah, I think that my curiosity and love of reading mixed with the constantly being surrounded by Bibles. And a lot of your listeners who are in the South will identify with this. A lot of people don't really read that book, but if you get into it, it's a little scary. And also so rich in 
metaphor for many, poetry. And yeah, that all plays into your intellectual perspective. Oh yeah, it's a hell of a book. <laughs> if you should excuse the expression. For some, the name liberal redneck sounds like an oxymoron, a contradiction of terms. Why does the stereotype of Southerners as bigoted or stupid persist? It's not as though racism is confined to this geographical region, tragically enough. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of people do think it's an oxymoron, but I mean, I think it's just, I mean, look, I, I think a huge part of it is every time, you know, unless it's one of us getting a shot on a, on any kind of TV program anywhere, otherwise, pretty much every single time you see somebody on your screen who sounds like me, who has this accent, it's the same kind of Bible thumping, mouth breathing troglodyte, you know, just not making us all look the best. And I know that there's all kinds of people who aren't like that, but the rest of the country, they kind of only see that one thing. And I think part of that is because whenever people show up to the South or look for a Southerner to talk to, they go either way to find the Bubba's of the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is like, not only, not only Hollywood, but just like media in general. And I don't want to, uh, you know, do the thing that the right tends to do where it just blames every single one of our problems on the media. I won't do that. But I will say that to piggyback on what Trey said, it, not just in Hollywood, but like, you know, anytime there's any, like a tornado <laughs> happening in the South, right? Some trailer park got ravaged. The, the news, the news reporters and stuff, they're not down there like, hoping to God that they find the next Mark Twain to interview. <laughs> They're not like at all. Like they can't wait to have some dude standing out there without his shirt on holding three dogs, like, because that's going to sell. Like, and I'm, I'm like, it's, it's a personal attack on me, but I still find it funny. So I get it. <laughs> like I don't blame them sometimes, but like, that's just what it is. That's just what sells. I think we've earned it a little. I want to, I want to state that we're, you know, we're answering this question. We're, we're talking to Southerners. We've earned it to some extent. It's just, but as you touched on in your question there, we're not the only region where racism exists, but we've gotten this stereotype and it is confusing. You know, every time, you know, the last election cycle, you would turn on uh, the new, of course not NPR, uh, of course not NPR, but all these other places would be like, we're going to the heart of Appalachia to understand what happened with Donald Trump. And it was like, just go to Staten Island or some rich dude's house. Literally pick one and you'll figure out what Yeah, happened. go to Orange County. Yeah. Well, in your stand-up routines, I saw that you all have run into instances in which you were stereotyped as negatively stereotyped as Southerners. How does satire help address misconceptions about people? Well, I mean, I think it just, in our specific example, it, you know, catches people off guard a lot. I mean, if someone's like a f active fan now and they know what we're about, then less so. But I think a part of why my videos went viral in the first place is because a whole lot of people were like, what, what is this? Uh, this? That is not what I expected. Or I had people literally tell me like, I didn't know that you were a thing in the universe, you know, or it's like, it's like seeing a unicorn. And which, I, again, I know is not true, but that's the perception that people have. And I think that that anytime you have your um, expectations just totally upended like that, it almost can't help but make you sort of reconsider your previous thought process about something. And you're doing it with humor, not with any sanctimony. Well, I, yeah, 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 especially I'm a for me. I could, son of a yeah. <laughs> we almost made it through without requiring any bleeps. Tell me, I ain't sanctimony, uh, by God. Yeah, right. About everybody in here. Yeah, you get you would get run out of my hometown for proclaiming that I'm not sanctimonious for sure. But uh, but I but yes, yeah, I mean, you get run out for using you, the word sanctimonious first. But after that, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, 
but I think we all just feel like we all just like comedy and humor in the first place and are just fans of it, you know, separate of any kind of like concerted strategy to sort of break down stereotypes or anything like that. I mean, we're all for that too, but like being funny is all, for all three of us approaching something from an angle of trying to find what's funny about it is just something that we just do with everything. It's like how we're wired, you well, know? And let me piggyback off that and acknowledge we all just made a joke together about stereotypes and we didn't really subvert them much at that just now. And we don't, we're not constantly out here trying to do that. We're comedians, stereotypes, uh, should be poked fun at. I think we live at a time where everyone's nervous about stereotypes and with good reason, but kind of going back to your first question to me, I, I think that we're going to be the last stereotype that it's not okay to pick at. And, and I understand that. I understand why that is the reality. And so my sort of opinion on that as a comedian is, well, if they're going to be making fun of me and my people anyway, I'm getting in on this. I'm going to, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it my way. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Like, honestly, the satire is just as much for me therapeutically as it is for, like, an audience that would enjoy it because kind of as Drew said, like, they like I, I very much don't consider myself just a dumb hick redneck. You know, I obviously don't feel that way about myself, but there is a goodly portion of society that uh, does. And if they're going to do that, then I'm going to have fun with it. And every now and then I'm going to make a video or something or like a bit in my acts where I lean completely into that. And realistically what I'm doing is just playing the character that they thought I really was, but it can be a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie. So it's kind of a, it's like kind of like a little cheat code because you can, you can jump back and forth. Like you, you're smart enough to be able to play the idiots and uh, then jump back and forth to defend yourself on it. And that's, it's a lot of fun. And I think it gives you, it's just another tool in your tool belt comedically, in my opinion. But you never justify the bigotry or hatred. No, 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 no. We, yeah, we don't do certainly not i mean that's i don't like, really justify the ignorance much if i'm honest with you every once in a while anymore. i'll let my papa you know in my head like a story about him i'll be like all right but he was from a different time but even that i catch myself it, there's no reason to justify any of it that's not the goal my grandma died four years ago and she was 96 when she died and she's kind of the last like that she's the last of the breed that I'll kind of defend the ignorance on a little bit, just in that she was born in 1920. She literally wasn't able to go to school past sixth grade because she had to, you know, go out in the fields or whatever. Then she had to support her family her whole life. The only news she ever heard was, I mean, it, not only just if it came in the newspaper, but like if her Paul let her read that newspaper or if he got it, and then by the time the age of information was upon us, she was already kind of slipping in her mind and she was just kind of reserved to the porch and she didn't watch anything on TV. And like, that's, that's genuine ignorance that it was kind of hard to remedy back then because she just wasn't an intelligent person. But nowadays, no matter who you are and almost no matter what economic background you come from to a certain extent, you're exposed every day to just a plethora of information that would contradict so many of your deeply held bigoted beliefs, but people still choose to ignore them. And that's the type of ignorance that I can't abide and won't. We'll be back in a moment with more from the Quarantine Comedy Trio. This is City Lights on WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE, 
I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with the comedians Trey Crowder, also known as the liberal redneck, Drew Morgan, and Corey Forrester. Their upcoming live-streamed stand-up show is called Quarantine Comedy. Here, Drew explains how their comedy routine is not just geared towards Southern audiences. I think a good thing about being a stereotype in comedy is that you can play off of it because everyone knows what the stereotype is. Right. That, yes, I agree with that. And I, I, I mean, sometimes I definitely get the feeling like when we're in Connecticut or something, I can tell like, man, they ain't got a clue what this particular thing <laughs> I'm doing is about, you know, but like Drew said, because it's a stereotype, they can follow it well enough. And also I feel like even in those instances, a lot of people, it's like zoo facet. Yes. A zoo. I was <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. It, it has that sort of element of like, be like, wow, this is fascinating <laughs> or whatever, like that kind of thing for this type of person who doesn't, you know, actually connect with any of it. But a lot of people do though. And cause a lot of, a lot of people that come to our shows, even in other places, they'll like one thing they try to do is give us what we call their red cred. They sort of try to establish themselves as being like, I'm kind of a redneck, even though I'm from Vermont or whatever. And so what we found is like in almost every state, you get out in the sticks or away from the cities and stuff and you start running into a lot of the same things, no matter what accent the people talk with there. So it's not as alien to most people at our shows as you might think. So really what, is kind of at the heart of what you're saying is it's more rural versus urban. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's, that's something that we all found out in 2016, really, that was the first time uh, that we all went on tour together and we did like, I mean, 42 States within, in less than a year. And we started, you know, Hank, we were hanging out in Colorado and, and Nebraska and all, and all these places that, aren't the South. And unfortunately, in some of those instances, we were like seeing rebel flags and stuff like that, you know, which is like completely the weirdest type of stolen valor in the world. Uh, but yeah, we found out very quick. And I kind of knew it early on because I'd had a buddy from Washington State who like he was a goat roper and he rode in rodeos and stuff. But I was like, well, in my opinion, he was the unicorn, you know. <laughs> uh, but then we found out we're like, oh, man, no, the divide really isn't south versus north there are people in rural colorado who feel way more the same as my relatives than the people in atlanta do just be, even though atlanta is only an hour and a half away it's a metropolitan so like you've got more in common with somebody 18 hours away than you do an hour and a half just because of that very specific thing well and also can i just add on to that i feel like going back to the media thing and again i I don't want to sound like some kind of fake news freak, but I do think that a lot of rural people feel a kinship with each other because they know they've been put in one group. People asked me if I knew people from the Joe Exotic documentary. That's a 12-hour drive from where I grew up. Now, did I know people like that? Yeah. Do I have to admit that if I'm going to do comedy about where I'm from? Yeah, I got to own some of it. I'm not trying to stick, you know, get away from that. My point is simply that I think the rural urban divide is a cultural one in terms of how we see each other. I think we have a lot more in common than, you know, going back to the thing, we're not unicorns. There are plenty of leftists in rural America, just as one example. There are plenty of LGBTQ people in rural America. There are plenty of minorities in rural America. All that is the case, but rural America does have this kinship of flyover state and the South and redneck and farm, all that is sort of people looking back at us and we're all aware of that. What kind of response have you received when conservatives appear at your show? Well, almost without exception, that does happen, but almost without exception, that conservative has been basically drugged Drug. to our show <laughs> by their by their uh, more progressive significant other. And usually, usually it's their wife. Wait, 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 wait. Before we go on, not always. Well, before we go on, let me just make a rural urban divide clarifier here. Dragged, 
They, they, they weren't yeah. drugged, as like, in yeah, case anybody not, misunderstood yeah. what he just said. They were dragged there. I don't think anyone came on Xanax. Well, maybe they did. I did once. Forced, <laughs> forced that the to come there. to a conservative was probably on a considerable amount of Xanax. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> anyway, that's usually the context. So given that, what they normally say, the conservatives who come to our show, they normally say something like, I don't agree with pretty much anything you said, but you are funny though. And I think we all feel like that's great for us. Like that's the best response we can hope for. I think from somebody like that, you know, again, I feel like you got to give them the benefit of the doubt as far as if you're a conservative and you're married to a liberal and have been for a while, you almost have to be one of the more, you know, reasonable or or open-minded ones. I mean, you hear this coming out of her mouth all the time and and then you come and hear us talk about it and you know, we're making a joke. So that's at least a little bit better. So they handle it pretty good. We've had literally one or two instances out of countless hundreds of shows at this point, one or two instances of a conservative who wound up there, got drunk and started screaming. Uh, But that almost never happens. And we threatened to whoop his (laughs) and he left. That's true. That's true. Drew, That's literally Drew specifically. True. <laughs> well, he kept wanting to talk about us being liberal, and I had to remind him we were also rednecks. And then he got he got scared and left. Well, but how then? How do the liberals respond? Well, it depends on where the liberals from. Uh, it's kind of two different situations. If it's a liberal from the south, especially the rural south, but really anywhere in the south, then they like really connect to it they love their their response is basically summed up as finally finally somebody's out there who sounds like i do or sounds like my dad does or whatever but is saying the things that i think instead of you know the other thing that makes us look bad in my opinion and then the liberals who are not from the south or like a really rural area that like we already talked about if the liberals from san francisco or portland or whatnot Again, they're totally on board with the politics. And I think the other part, the redneck part, the Southern part, I alluded to it earlier, is more of like a novelty factor for them that they enjoy, but they don't like, they don't as deeply connect to it as the ones in the South do. Then maybe you are changing minds on both sides for the better. Well, I think one of our big goals that we don't, we try to always talk about, but it's not necessarily obvious on its face, is to let people who live in a small town where the local politics is dominated by a sort of Fox News viewpoint, let them know they're not alone. Come to our shows and meet people like you. Start organizing with them, you know, start understanding that your voice matters and speak up because we'll go to San Francisco and we'll meet these people who do their red credits, Trey said, and it's almost like they're closeted rednecks. They're like, look, I haven't talked about it in a long time, but I used to go fishing, you know? And, uh, you're like, okay. But in other places we talk to people and they're like, I am in a very red area. And I think that is true, but we're trying to let them know it's probably not as red as even you think. Like you, you've bought the myth that's been thrown back at you that you're alone and all that. And you've been shouted down by some people in your hometown, maybe, but find people like you. You won't be performing in front of an in-person audience on August 7th. How do you feel about doing a live stream stand-up show? I mean, we're definitely excited about it for sure. We talked about, like, I'm not going to lie, when the pandemic first started and some comedians pretty quickly were doing, like, Zoom-based or video-based stand-up comedy shows. And at the very beginning, I was like, in in my mind, I was not for it. I was like, I don't, that just cannot be the same thing, you know. And since then, you know, as the pandemic stretched on, I've done some other comic shows and so have Corey and Drew and you actually find out that it's it's a lot of fun. It's not the same thing, but it is a fun thing and still, it still is comedy and can be uh, very funny. And so once we all kind of realized you could have a good time with it, we started talking about having one ourselves. Cause like Corey said, I mean, we like lived on the road together for a long three plus years and then, you know, now we haven't had any live shows since March and probably won't for the foreseeable future. So, like, I mean, we're very, very ready for and excited for this 
virtual show. Comedians Trey Crowder, also known as the liberal redneck, Drew Morgan, and Corey Forrester. Their live stream stand-up show, Quarantine Comedy, will be tomorrow at 6 p.m. We'll have more information on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. For artists who perform live in real time, the pandemic has brought its own set of challenges. Actors, comedians, dancers, and musicians of all genres have moved to virtual performances, some more easily than others. When a group of Atlanta's finest classical musicians gave a free virtual concert in June, more than 3,000 people attended. This Sunday, those same artists will perform another online chamber music extravaganza from the Sanctuary of First Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. Joining us now via Zoom are pianists Will Ransom and Julie Kushron. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lois. Always great to hear your voice. The 3,000 attendees of your June concert attest to the international experience of you and your colleagues. This concert, this Sunday, soon after the June performance, seems very ambitious. What made you decide to perform another program with entirely different repertoire? Well, I wanted to um, do a repeat concert as soon as I heard how many people had tuned in to the other one. Um, it's just so inspiring to see that it was such an interest all over the world, really, to, um, to attend the online concert. And so we started thinking about new repertoire and what to do. And, and we came up with this one and we've tried to make it a little bit different than the first one, just so that people can experience a different kind of classical music and that they can actually relate to in some ways. Um, and so it's a little bit of new things. It's a little bit of pieces and composers that might not be as known. And then there are some pieces and composers that are very well known. So it's a little bit of everything. Take us through some of the works to be played, beginning with the music by Hungarian composer Ernst von Dohnányi. Well, uh, Dohnányi is not necessarily a very known composer name. The quintet, however, is very uh, famous. It's probably one of his most famous works. And it's one of my absolutely favorite movements of a piano quintet. Um, it's very um, Brahms-like. He's a very meaty composer. Everything is very romantic and um, he has these beautiful melodies and then he has these big explosions. And um, so it's really um, an amazing piece of music that might not be as well known to a lot of people. excited to be able to perform that and once again you know we can have a quintet and feature most of our uh, performers at the beginning of, of the concert. Now will you be the pianist performing the Dokhani? I will be the pianist uh, performing in the Dokhani, yeah. I wanted to add that uh, these concerts which were the brainchild of Julie I think our, we were all just so in incredibly gratified by the response online 
really having no idea how many people might be interested and, and tune in. And the, her brilliant idea was to bring together musicians who all have a sort of a core audience in their own organizations, the Georgian chamber players, the Atlanta Chamber Players and the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta, the people who love music from the First Presbyterian Church. And it was that collaboration of bringing together all of those different aspects of, of music lovers from literally around the world, as she said, uh, that I think made it so successful. And the beauty of it as well, of course, is that that's exactly what chamber music is, is collaboration, working together and uh, bringing together a, a group of people to become more than each one is by themselves. Mm. Julie, you mentioned that the piece by Dohnani uh, sounds a bit like his predecessor, Johannes Brahms, and much of the music on this program is unabashedly romantic, like rich, delicious desserts. And you are not counting calories, nor should you with this music. And a great example of that romantic intensity is the Brahms Piano Trio in B. You will play the final movement. How would you describe this piece? to someone new to chamber music. It's really funny with this piece because Brahms composed the first version of this when he was in his early 20s. He was very, very young. And it was one of the first pieces that he ever composed and published. And then when he was at the end of his life, he revised it and changed almost everything about it. And it's actually very interesting to listen to if the audience here have a chance to listen to both the original version and the revised version, because they're similar, but they are so different that you can't believe that it's actually the same composer and the same piece. And recently I, I did a performance with David and Chris down in Amelia Island. That is your brother, David Kusharan, the violinist, and Chris Rex, the cellist. Yes, and we were performing it, and Chris was, you know, saying, why don't we play a little bit from the original version and then compare it then with the revised version that's mostly played now. And so it was really interesting to see um, the difference between the two. But we'll, we're going to do the, the revised version. It has definitely more meat on the bone <laughs> um, than, the, than the first version. And it's just, it's just a typical Brahms, beautiful, like you said, high calorie piece of music, just showing Brahms's romantic and kind of pained um, life in a way. is just I think the best Brahms pieces that there is and I wanted to include it on the program. It is one of my desert island pieces as we <laughs> used to call it. Now there's a love duet on this program or rather a duet to be played by two people very much in love. Will please tell us about the piece you and your wife in Kong will perform. Oh, thanks. Yes, this is a beautiful piece entitled, appropriately, Romance by Robert Schumann. And people may know the melody because it's so beautiful and easy to sing. And it's played by so many different instruments as well. You'll hear it for violin or for oboe or, or even for flute sometimes. Of course, I think it works best on viola. <laughs> I am a little influenced by my beautiful wife, Inzi Kong. And we are loving both 
performing together and this beautiful music and spending our second year of marriage together. Oh, did you and Yinzi fall in love performing music together? Well, I would say I did with her. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I ever laid on, eyes on her, I was judging a competition and she walked out on stage with her viola and I was smitten immediately. <laughs> oh, well then this music is most appropriate. <laughs> the last time we spoke, you were talking about arrangements of famous symphonies for piano, for hands, pieces that may sound strange to 21st century audiences and many 20th century audiences for that matter because we're accustomed to hearing 90 or so symphonic orchestra musicians playing them. But, Will, you described the piano as the 19th century home entertainment system. Would you elaborate on that once again and why that applies to playing piano arrangements of symphonic works? Yes. So back in the 1800s, when the piano as we know it was really just reaching its, its final stage of development, uh, then obviously this was before electronics and there were no recordings and there were also very few even orchestras in the world. You had to live in a major city uh, in the mid to late 1800s or um, in the earlier times know someone in royalty or someone extraordinarily wealthy who could have their own court orchestra to play the wonderful music that was being composed at the time. And so 1850, 60, 70, into the late 1800s, the piano came along and then manufacturing came along and made them cheaper to produce. And so almost every home had a piano at that time. And yeah, it was the home entertainment center because there wasn't a lot else to do, uh, certainly not of this caliber and this quality of entertainment. And so the composers would arrange pretty much every possible piece for either piano solo or piano forehands, which was even easier because then each part doesn't have as many notes. So if you lived out in the country and wanted to experience the Mozart G minor symphony, uh, but had absolutely no access to an orchestra, you'd get the music and many, many people could play the piano at least a little bit at that time. And you'd sit down with your best friend and play the Mozart G minor symphony and everybody could gather around and listen and enjoy. And it was a way to, for people to be able to experience this music who otherwise would not be able to. As I say, pretty much everything was arranged for piano forehands or piano solo. And then as recording became prevalent, as radio came into being, and as orchestras spread throughout the world, it gradually became unfashionable. Because why hear a piano version of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony when you can hear the whole orchestra play it? And so for the last hundred years or so, we really haven't heard these pieces. But there's so much fun both to listen to and to play for uh, the performers, to, for us pianists to be able to play Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. There's nothing more thrilling than, than that. And for the listeners, you hear a piece that you think you know in a completely different way. It's almost like hearing a blueprint of the music. You hear voices and uh, lines that come out that perhaps you haven't ever heard before. And it's very much like uh, Bach. The music is so great that it can be arranged for almost any combination of instruments and still be an incredible experience. Mm. Now, uh, 
Whose four hands will we hear? Because there are three pianists on this program. Um, for the symphonies, it'll be Will and I that play. And when I was trying to figure out the program for this concert, I, I sat down and I was talking to someone who's not a professional musician. And I was looking through the program and I'm, you know, I'm explaining to him, this is, you know, look at all these famous pieces, you know, like look at all these very well-known pieces. And he was listening to them and he was looking at me and he said, they're not famous and well-known to me <laughs> and I'm not a professional. So I guess for me, I thought, you know, these are all very well-known pieces. And so he said, try and think of pieces that uh, people that might not be professional musicians or very well known in the in the classical repertoire try and find pieces that they might relate to and that's what i wanted to do with these concerts um, in the first place is to sort of give an opportunity to a wide range of audiences people that might not go to classical music concerts that often and have an opportunity to listen to a piece and go oh i know that particularly uh, well I don't know jazz music that well but when I hear a jazz piece that I know I go oh my goodness I know that piece you know and it's fun and it's exciting to know something and so I went back into the thinking box and I thought you know what better piece than the Mozart Symphony number no. 40 um, to play and perform um, we don't have an orchestra and um, to be able to play that for piano forehands would be great. So I, I called Will and I said, hey, do you have the music for this? And he's like, yep, yeah, I do. And so that's how that came about. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you're right about hearing it in an entirely new perspective if you're acquainted with the symphonies and also being a wonderful invitation to listeners who may have had some vague recollection of the tune, but are, are hearing this perhaps for the first time fully played. With these concerts at first, as this series, you're part of First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, thanks to the music director of First Press, am I correct? Uh, yes. Um, so Jens Korndorfer, who is the organist at First Presbyterian Church, we got to know each other when I um, picked out a brand new Steinway piano, D piano, um, for the church last year. And that's one of the reasons why the concert is also very piano heavy, because the piano is just so incredibly beautiful and we want to try and use it as much as possible. So we were in New York picking out this beautiful new piano and we got to know each other. And when I was trying to play on the piano a little bit more and to kind of play it in a little bit, we got to talking and this was right in the beginning of the pandemic and, you know, all the concerts were being canceled and we were talking and it's pretty upsetting and sad to, you know, see all these concerts being canceled. And so that's sort of how this concert came about the first one and then with all the support and enthusiasm from both the audience and the musicians i'm just so excited and glad that we can we can do it again and what we did last time with the concert was that we all the musicians are doing this all for free and what i wanted to do was to try and get donations so that we could get another concert going and that i could be able to pay the musicians this time so we've accepted donations and people were very generous last time and we're doing the same thing for this concert and so that the musicians can actually get paid from the donations that the 
the public or giving. So it's really been an amazing journey to see that the generosity from our audiences has been so wonderful. Um, and I'm just so glad that we can do it again. Mm. Now, because Jens, the music director and organist at First Press is such a wonderful musician himself. I was not familiar with any chamber music for organ, and these pieces have come as kind of a wonderful surprise. For this concert, there will be a work by the composer Reinberger. He wrote a piece for organ, cello, and violin. And it's extraordinary because in the beginning it almost sounds prayer-like. And then it works into this very romantic era piece that you can just revel in the sounds. I think that's one more special aspect of these programs you have offered. Yeah, the piece is, is beautiful. I, you know, when we had the first concert, Jens was playing on his own. And when we talked about doing a new concert, he was like, oh, I really hope that I can, I can find the chamber music piece because I want to play with other people too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he found this piece and we listened to it and it's just absolutely beautiful. So I'm so pleased that we can have it on the program. time you joked about ending the concert with a quintet for seven musicians. Will you refer to it as a septet? And here you will follow that lead once again. What is it about that Dvorak piano quintet that just keeps giving to the very last note? It's just one of the most extraordinarily extravagant, exuberant, and beautiful pieces in the entire repertoire. And I think for that reason, it, it's one of the most beloved. And it's just, it's so much fun. Dvorak loved trains in addition to music. Uh, his other, one of his other great passions was trains. And you hear the sound of the locomotives in so many pieces that he wrote. And in this last movement that we're playing, it starts with the chugga 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 and goes all the way through. You can just feel him and his joy at watching these extraordinary machines go through the countryside and in Bohemia. really interesting too because there are not that many breaks in between and the piano parts so the pianists are going to have a real challenge trying to take over for each other and we have one more challenge this time because Liz Elizabeth Pridgen the other pianist she's eight months pregnant now and so it's going to be a little bit tight um <laughs> so We'll figure out how that's going to go. And another funny thing is that the, the Mendelssohn piece that Elizabeth and I are playing, the piano forehands, the Andante and Allegro Brillante, it's a very challenging piece that was actually challenging to sit together and it's very entwined, like both hands. And before she was pregnant, it was difficult. So I'm very curious to see how it's going to be now when she's eight months pregnant. <laughs> 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 of us sitting there. 
<laughs> well, we'll have to check back when that baby is born because no doubt that baby is going to have some very sophisticated listening already under its belt. Who knows? Maybe the baby will play at, you know, age two months. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> this has been such a delight. Julie Kushram, Will Ransom, when your listeners have graciously yelled Encore, you clearly rise to the occasion. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Lois. Hope everybody will tune in on Sunday. Pianists Will Ransom and Julie Coucheron. They'll perform in another online chamber music extravaganza this Sunday, August 9th, from the Sanctuary of First Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. More information will be available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back Monday morning at 11 with LGBTQ scholar Eric Cervini, author of The Deviant's War, The Homosexual Against the United States of America. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden are City Lights producers. Our engineer is Kevin Brinker. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.